If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 8, the book of Isaiah chapter 8, and you can see here uh, on the slide that the theme of the message this morning is trusting God in troubled times, trusting God in troubled times. Uh, I, if I could subtitle the message, I would call it, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> don't just do something, stand there, and I think you'll understand what I mean by that as we get into the message. Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 8, and we'll be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter. And I want to encourage you as we read this, we're going to spend some time after I read this, we're going to begin the message. I'm going to give you some background. It's very important whenever we look at the Old Testament or any part of the Scripture that we really understand the background and the context, and we understand how God was speaking to the people in that day, and then how those principles apply to us in our day. And it's very important that we do that in an accurate and a theologically sound way. Um, and so, so we will be doing a little bit of that as we get into the message, but then I do want to make some application to our own day and to our own lives. And I hope that this will be a blessing to us individually and that because of that, we'll be able to be a blessing to others uh, in a time when there is a great need, a great need for blessing. So Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. The scripture says, For the, the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be af afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel, for the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through in hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they shall be driven into darkness. Our dear Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that, Lord, you give words not only through your prophet, but you give words to your prophet, that your servants over the history of, of your working in this world have needed your encouragement, have needed your rebuke even at times, have needed your admonition and instruction. Lord, all those who would represent you need to have you speak to us. And so we pray now, Lord, that you would speak to us. Help us to know how you would have us respond as ambassadors for Jesus Christ in this world, in this day. For we pray in his name, amen. As I was uh, thinking about this, uh, about this message, um, I thought about uh, the poem, If, by Rudyard Kipling, and the most famous lines, I believe, are the first uh, two lines, which says, basically, if you, it, which says, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Have you ever heard those, those words? 
and you keep your head while all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Um, we're in a day in which it's very, very important. It's extremely important that people think clearly, isn't it? Uh, normally, in a message like this, uh, I'm giving you away kind of a trade secret uh, for preachers, is that you've got to establish the need on the part of the audience to hear the message, right? In other words, I have a pastor friend who says, no one learns anything until they have the need to know, which is true. But given that we're preaching about troubled times, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time telling you we're living in troubled times. I think I have to start listing off all the things that are troubling about our times. I think we're all aware of that. Now, I would have to say this. Uh, times have been troubled ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Okay? I mean, the whole world, the history of the world is troubled times. You can't read your, your Bible without seeing troubled times, troubled times. And, and the intervals of peace and, and, and blessing uh, are only partial and only very brief. And then troubled times again. And that's because we live in a fallen world. But there are times when the troubles are more obvious to everyone, and we don't have to spend our time trying to convince people um, that uh, uh, happy days are not here again, right? And so, and so that, in a way, is helpful because uh, that lets us get straight into the next question, which is, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? I don't, know, you ever, I don't know if you've felt that way during this last year. What do I do? I mean, not, there's what do I do about what I'm supposed to do? Like, how do I keep my family together? And how do I make decisions about, do we go places? Do we not go places? Do we talk to people? Do we not talk to people? How do we minister? Uh, and it seems like everywhere you look, they're hard ethical questions. And there don't seem to be really good, always really good, solid, easy answers. And I have to just confess, this is personal confession time. That really stresses me because I want to do the right thing. But if you don't know what the right thing is, you're afraid, well, if I do this, this bad will happen. If I do this, this bad thing will happen. And so what in the world do we do? And so, and add to that to the fact that, and this is true not just with regard to the, to the pandemic, of course, but to the whole situation we're living in and all the other things that are going on. Everyone, there are many, many people who will tell you what you're supposed to do. And they'll tell you loudly. They'll tell you in all caps. And they will call you names if you don't go along with whatever it is that they're proposing, right? In other words, so it's very, it's very stressful. Uh, for the believer, uh, but we have a responsibility not just to do what's right in regard to our little sphere of influence, of course, and our own responsibility, but we can have a testimony and be a blessing to other people, too. And God wants us to be that kind of testimony. So the question is, how do I, how do I as a believer, how do we as groups of believers who know the Lord, who know the gospel, who know that God's in charge, right? We know these things, we believe these things, then how do we have the kind of an influence and the kind of a testimony that's gonna be a blessing to those around us and actually contribute something to the work that God is doing in this world? And that's kind of where we are. Well, as I mentioned, we're not the first people to face that kind of a situation. Isaiah was in that kind of a situation. As you know, Isaiah was a prophet, he was God's man, he was chosen by God, and he was put into very difficult times. Now, Isaiah prophesied for a long time. Um, uh, he prophesied during the, the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, four kings in Judah. He started out prophesying in the time of Uzziah at the very beginning of his ministry, and Uzziah was a very strong king, and, and the nation seemed very prosperous, and it seemed like a very good time. Then th things started to go downhill very rapidly. 
and then, and then kings came in, and they were not faithful to the Lord, and they wouldn't trust the Lord, and God was raising up these other nations to discipline his people, and the great nation that he raised up at this time was the Assyrian Empire. Assyria, not to be confused with Syria, Assyria was located in what we would consider the northern part of Mesopotamia or Iraq today, and they became a mighty empire, and they were powerful. They were they seemed to be irresistible. Uh, they had developed a number of innovations. One of them was a standing army. In that day, most armies were recruited among the populace. And so you could only have the army sustained when they weren't required to be on their farms harvesting or planting. So there were certain seasons when things were slow on the farm, and that's when you would campaign, do your military campaign. But, uh, but Assyria developed a whole system of a standing professional army with professional skills like siege warfare and with logistics to be able to support that army uh, without just having to live off the land. And they were a mighty and powerful force. And they were conquering nations left and right. And they were threatening the little nations, the smaller nations uh, uh, in the area, what we call uh, in the area of Israel today, around there. And so what do you do, right? What do you do? Here you're, the, the, the kingdom of Israel was divided between the northern kingdom, which had not really faithfully worshipped God ever since its beginning, and the southern kingdom, Judah, which sometimes faithfully worshipped God and lots of times did not faithfully worship God. So, so what do you do in that kind of environment? There is this threat, right? We hear the word tossed about a lot, existential threat. Well, this was an existential threat to these, to these nations, and so they had to decide what to do. Well, some people said, well, what we need to do is we need to align ourselves with Assyria. We need to get under their rule. And we'll just go along with whatever they want to do, and then maybe they'll take our money and they'll take our wealth, but they won't kill us. Other nations said, nah, we don't do that. We're going we're gonna to go to Egypt. They're, in, they're a great power, and we're going to align ourselves with Egypt, and we'll get in a power block with them, and we'll resist the Assyrians. Another group says, no, we won't do that. We will all get together, our little countries, and we will build a coalition of nations that will resist the Assyrians. Then we'll retain our independence in all of that. But in all of this, in all of this, there was one option that people weren't considering, and that is trust God. You say, well, wait a minute. How, how does that work? Well, remember, God chose Israel out of Egypt. God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he called them to be his special people. He called them, he calls Israel, when he's talking to Pharaoh, he says, Israel is my firstborn. What he means by that is, he is Israel is the representative of all the nations that I'm going to call to be holy to myself, and I'm going to deal with the nations through Israel. So if you bless Israel, God will bless you. Because to bless Israel is to bless God. If you curse Israel, God will curse you because Israel was God's covenant people. He had chosen them sort of like a priestly people, right? In the old days, you would choose a priest from among the people, and the priest would represent the people, right, to God, through sacrifices, and then would teach the people what God wanted. Well, God chose Israel to be that nation to represent the other nations, so he could bless them. So, by the way, when Pharaoh wouldn't let Israel go, he was cutting off his own nose to spite his face, right? He was bringing about God's God's judgment, the very thing that God was going to do to bless Egypt, Egypt resisted. And that was pretty true of all the nations around. If they had submitted to God's plan, 
for that day, they would have been blessed. And Israel was to be blessed materially, was to be blessed economically, socially, uh, politically, and that was to be a testimony to all the nations that Jehovah is the only true God, and all you have to do to be blessed is trust him instead of worshiping all these false gods. Well, people didn't get the message, and in fact, Israel itself usually didn't get the message. So what they would do is they would say, look at all these other nations. We could be a lot more powerful if we made alliances with those nations. But that's not your job. Your job is to be allied with God and represent him to the nations. And so God said, don't go down to Egypt to multiply horses and chariots. Don't make alliances with these nations. And whenever Israel did that, they started adopting the false gods and false worship and false religion of these nations, and they brought God's curse down on them instead of his blessing. And that's exactly what was going on in Isaiah's day. So uh, I won't, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 7, Isaiah is told to go speak to Ahaz, the king of Judah, the legitimate king, uh, the, the, the descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem, and said, look, don't be afraid. What was going on is the northern kingdom of Israel was getting together with the king of Syria, and they were going to build an alliance against the Assyrians. And Ahaz didn't want to do that. He wanted to, be, he wanted to make an alliance with the Assyrians. So he had a different strategy. He was on a different side, right? He was on the other side of the aisle on that question. And they said, well, this isn't going to work. If Judah doesn't support us, right, we can't defeat Assyria, so we've got to have regime, regime change. They were going to do regime change. They were going to come down and, and attack Jerusalem and put Ahaz off the throne. Remember, Ahaz is the legitimate king as the son of David, the descendant of David. And they were going to put some other person on the throne. And so Jerusalem's really worried about this. And, and Isaiah was told to go speak to Ahaz and say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Trust God. See, trust God. And, and he said, look, ask a sign for the heaven for height, for the earth, for the depth, for the sea, you know, any kind of sign. Ask a sign. If you're, if you're worried that God's not going to do this, ask for a sign. Ahaz says, I'm not asking for a sign. And the reason he wouldn't ask for a sign is he had already made up his mind what he was going to do. He was going to make an alliance with the Assyrians. He was not going to trust God. And so then what you get is God says, okay, house of David, you failed. House of David, you, descendants of David, kings of Israel, you were supposed to lead Israel to trust God, and you've not done it because you're not trusting God. Therefore, therefore, a couple things are going to happen. One is I'm going to send a king a son of David who is going to trust God. And we know who that is, right? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you have the promise that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and they would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You've failed, but I'm not going to fail. Of course, that's for a long time. We don't know. They didn't know how long that would be, but that was turned out to be for a long time. In the meantime, because you're trusting the Assyrians instead of me, I'm going to let you see what it's like to be under the Assyrians and you remember what happened. The Assyrians came down, they conquered the northern kingdom and took them captive, and they came down and they almost conquered the whole of the southern kingdom, all except Jerusalem. And remember under Hezekiah, what happened? God delivered them and he did not let them go into captivity. But it was a close-run thing and it was a terrible disaster. 
It was a terrible disaster in the nation. All these cities had been taken and plundered. It was a terrible thing, but God saved them and delivered them. But the reason the Assyrians came was because Israel did not trust God. They trusted Assyria. Now, we have to, we're going to have to get to how in the world we apply this to our lives today because we are not a nation, right? We are a people that live among all the nations. The church is not a political entity. It's a spiritual entity. So the application's not going to be the same. But the truth is the same. When we trust the world and put our faith in the world and not in God, the world then comes and, 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 and spoils us spiritually. The world comes in and just robs us of our power, and we can't represent God anymore. And that happens, has happened throughout the history of the church. So that's the background. Now, what's this chapter? What's the rest of this chapter about? Um, well, now that I've spent my whole message telling you the background of the message, here comes the message. This is God speaking to Isaiah and his followers. And, and, of course, that would imply us. We are his followers in the sense that we read his prophecy, we believe his word, we're trusting in the Lord, right? So this applies to us as well, these, these truths. And basically saying now, because all that's happening, you're going to have to live in that. You're, 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 right? What did Jesus say? We, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. Well, you could turn that around, right, and say we are, uh, we are not of the world. That is, our, our hope is in God, our citizenship is in heaven, our, 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 our authority is the word of God, so we are different. In, we're, we're to be fundamentally different from the way the world thinks, but we are still what? In the world. You know, not exempt from COVID, right? It's part of the societies in which we live. Around people, I mean, we are in the world, and so we're affected, right? We're affected by what's going on in the world. Isn't that true? Don't Christians get affected by what's going on in the world? So what do we do? <laughs> what do we do in order to accurately and effectively represent God in troubled times? So that's the, that's the context of this message, okay? So what are the, there are three basic things here. There are three temptations that God is dealing with, and he's telling Isaiah and his, and his disciples, resist these temptations. Resist these temptations and instead trust God. Resist these temptations and instead trust God. So what are these three things? Well, the first thing we see is in, in verses 11 through 15. It says, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand. It's interesting. In other words, God is saying, look, this is, this, he was very insistent, right? God is speaking, it seems strange to say speaking with a strong hand, but the idea is that's God's power. God is powerfully speaking to me. And what's he saying to me? I should not walk in the way of this people, meaning I should not think like they think and act like they act, right? This was the people of Israel and Judah that were not trusting God. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. They don't trust God, but you don't be like them. And do not say a conspiracy concerning all that these pe this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him shall you hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. So there really are four things in this part when we, we are, the, but the point about this, uh, these verses is that we, are, we must resist 
we must resist the temptation to panic. Resist the temptation to panic. What, what is panic? What, what is panic? Panic is where, because of the pressure of the situation and the fear or whatever else is generated under a crisis, we make seriously unwise decisions without reflection, right? That's essentially panic. It's like doing something crazy because you didn't think about it because you were under such uh, emotional distress because of the situation. And what he's telling Isaiah is, don't you panic. Don't you panic. Trust God instead. Now, there, there are various parts to this, right? What is, what's involved in the pressure of panic? First of all, the pressure can be quite intense. He says in verse 12, don't say... A conspiracy concerning all this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. You're saying, okay, what's he talking about? Well, this was a time in which people were taking, uh, were saying, look, we've got to take this course of action or the Assyrians are coming. No, we've got to take this course of action or the Assyrians are coming. And they were very, very insistent and very, very upset. And they, they, the tendency was to try to pressure the prophet to take their side. You see what I'm saying? Isaiah is the prophet. He's the prophet of the Lord. And what's the pressure on the prophet of the Lord? Well, we need to get him on our side. We need to recruit him to our cause. Why? Well, because he speaks for God. And if we can get him on our side, God will bless us. By the way, it doesn't work that way, folks. It doesn't work. I remember my pastor in South Carolina used to say, God doesn't take sides. God is his own side. God is his own side. What do I mean by that? The point is, God calls you to be on his side. He doesn't pick up sides between you. You're saying, well, does, does that mean God doesn't care about this thing or that thing or this position or that position or this sin or that sin? No, of course he cares. But the point is, he doesn't say, well, you folks, you're 80% right, and you folks are only 60% right, so I'm going to join the 80%ers instead of the 60%ers. No, God says, come to me because I'm 100%. Right? In other words... We've got to stop trying to get God on our side, and we've got to make sure we're what? On his side. And that's the fundamental thing Christians must stand for in troubled times. Right? We must always stand for God and for his truth. But, it's, but there's tremendous pressure in this world, and the pressure has to do with fear. Right? It's interesting. It says, um, it says be not afraid of their threats. And, 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 and the, the text here has a footnote, and the footnote basically says, or fear or terror. Be not afraid of their fear. So, you know, the, the difficulty with that is you say, okay, don't be afraid of, the, of them, of the thing that they're doing to make you afraid. That would be threats. Or don't be afraid of the thing that they fear. And you say, well, which one is it? Um, I'm not sure. But I, I would say this, they're related. Have you ever been at home, let's say you're at home and you're really, really nervous about something, you're really upset about something, you're really scared of something, has that ever caused you to really lay into people because you didn't feel like they were helping you solve your problem? But sometimes when we are really, really distraught about something, what do we do to other people? We start squeezing on them. See? So these two things go together. These two things go together, right? Don't fear their fear. Right? Neither be troubled or neither dread. Right? And it's this idea of intense fear. Don't be afraid of that. We say, well, okay, well, how do I just not be afraid? It's like, okay, don't think of a pink elephant. That doesn't work, does it? 
But God gives the answer. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't, don't allow their way of thinking to stampede or panic you. Why? Because we have an answer. And what is it? Let the Lord, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear, or he himself. In other words, what is the answer for the fear of the world? The fear that the world has and the fear that the world imposes. What's the answer to that fear? It's the fear of God. It's the fear of God. It's interesting. What's he called here? He's called the Lord of hosts. The word host is armies. This is literally Jehovah of armies, or the long expression is Jehovah, the God of armies. And the point is, God's got all the armies. God's got all the power, right? God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God does not get off his throne, you know, because of world events, right? God is still seated on his throne. I remember it's kind of interesting. There was this... Um, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel in the time of Elisha. They, had, um, they were fighting against um, the Syrians. This was the kings of Syria. And uh, God told Elisha to, to go tell the, the king of Israel that the, 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 the Syrians were coming and to go fight them and that God would give them the victory. And God gave them the victory. Well, the Syrians went back home and said, you know, Jehovah, Jehovah, the God of the Israelites, He's a God of the mountains. He's a God of the hills. That's where he lives. See? And let's next time, we'll, we'll get another army and we'll you know, replace the army, right? And next time, we'll attack him in the plains and we'll beat him in the plains. Uh, it's a little bit like this. Um, this is my understanding. If I'm incorrect on this, someone who knows this better, correct me. But it, my understanding is, that the, 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 the Bolivian national soccer team plays in La Paz, Bolivia. That's their home field. And it's like 12,000 feet high. I would think they have a serious advantage when they play other teams, right? Here comes a team from the coast and they gotta play at 12,000 feet. I would think that those who train at that altitude would have a, so they have a serious, if, if, if I'm correct about that, that would give them a serious what? Home field advantage, right? Isn't home field advantage important, right? In football in December, if you're Minnesota, well, it used to be. Now they play in a dome. But in the old days, they played outside. Or Green Bay, right? There's a serious home field advantage if you're able to play on your home. And so it's almost like that's what the Syrians are saying. Look, they had the home field advantage because their God is a God of the mountains. If we fight him in the plains, their God will be weak, and he won't be able to what? So what does God do? He goes to Elisha. He appears to Elisha and says, the Syrians are saying that Jehovah is the God of the mountains. Therefore, next time, fight him in the plains. Why? Because God wanted all the world to know that he is God and the only God. It isn't that they're all these different gods and they're all fighting each other and you try to get an advantage and all of that. No, no, no. God is God. He is the only one to fear. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the word before doesn't mean Higher than me, it means besides me. Thou shalt have no other gods besides me. Why? Because he's the only God. He's the only sovereign, right? And, and he wants to demonstrate that. And the one place, the place he is most demonstrating that right now is in the heart of his children. Not through might, nor by power, but by spirit. Not through miracles, 
but by people who continue in whatever circumstances to trust in him and obey his commandments and love him supremely and love their neighbor in spite of everything that's going on. That's how God shows his power in troubled times. But we can't be an instrument for that if we don't what? If we don't trust him. If we don't trust him. The fear of God is an interesting phrase. It has to do with putting God in his own right place. I fear God when in my mind and in my heart and in my words, I put God where he belongs, which is way up here. Which is, by the way, if you fear God, you will also be humble. Because if I put God in his right place, then I have to end up in my right place. And if his right place is way up high, where's my place? Way down low which is a good hint. If someone claims to be fearing God and claims to be promoting the work of God, if they are proud or arrogant, then they aren't pleasing God and fearing God. You can't fear God and not be humble. You can't fear God and not be humble. So that's a great test. How do you respond to people? Do you respond in humility? Do you respond in faith, or do you respond in the, in the flesh? So we need to trust God. We need to trust God. But also, we need to understand that God has a purpose in what he's allowing. God has a purpose. Now, we don't always understand those purposes in detail, do we? We don't want to be like Job's friends. Remember Job? What was the problem with his friends? Well, they had this theology that says that God is just. He's righteous, which is true. And God judges sin, which he does. But then they thought they had it all figured out and said, therefore, if Job is suffering, he must have what? Sin. See, they got reductionistic and simplistic about it, and they thought they knew more than God knew. And they were wrong. They were just flat wrong. So we don't want to be like Job's friends and say, oh, I got it all figured out. I got the whole thing figured out. You know what's going to happen with the fact, you know what's going to happen with this, and then this is going to happen, right? No, 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 God has not given us that. And I think the reason is he wants us to trust him. If I knew everything, I wouldn't have to trust him, would I? Right? I mean, do you really want to worship a God who's not any smarter than you are? Think of it. If you had God figured out, he wouldn't be worthy of your worship, would he? There are always going to be things that we don't understand, and that requires that we have a certain humility. But that humility has to be grounded in the fact that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do, even if it doesn't seem like it at the moment. You see what I'm saying? We've got to trust God. And what's going to happen is here, God is saying there's going to be a sifting. He says, look at um, verse 14. And he will be as a sanctuary. That means for those who trust him, God will be a sanctuary. Right? But for those who don't trust him, he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There is a division that goes on. God allows testing of his people, doesn't he? He allows testing of his church. He allows testing of individuals' hearts. And he allows and brings trials to test whether we really do what? Trust him or not. And that's happening. Isn't that happening today? It's always been happening. And so God has a purpose for this. God has a purpose for this. But we've got to resist the urge to panic. And the way we resist the urge to panic is to trust in God because he alone is worthy, alone is worthy of our trust. Well, that's the first thing we must do. The second thing quickly we must do is we must resist the pressure toward discouragement or resist the temptation of discouragement. When things don't go well, there are various reactions people can have. One reaction is to 
is to panic. Another reaction is just to kind of curl up and say, what's the use, right? Throw in the towel. It's so bad that nothing I can do will make any difference, right? So the first one is to try to do too much. That is to try to do something that's way beyond my ability. I can't fix it. I absolutely can't fix it. On the other hand, it's to say, well, I can't do anything and therefore not do anything. See, both of those are wrong. Notice he says here in verses, um, in verses 16 through 18, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. In other words, what's going to happen is God is saying to the faithful people, look, you know the truth. You know the truth. I'm revealing the truth to you. You bind it up and you keep it and you believe it with your disciples, with your followers, because most people aren't going to believe it. Okay? But you believe it. You trust it. You keep doing, doing the right thing. You keep being faithful, right? And, and eventually, I will bring about what I promised to bring about. That's kind of what he's saying. All right? Bind up the testimony, seal the law of my disciples. And then Isaiah says, and I will what? Verse 17. I will wait on the Lord. To wait means to have a, 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 an eager, but at the same time, a patient or trusting expectation. It's an eager a trusting expectation. It's looking to him for him to work. It's looking for revival. It's looking for deliverance, but it's doing so in a way that is not whining, right, and is not panicking, but is trusting. It's an eager, trusting anticipation, like, like Christmas time, right? Right? The child is eagerly awaiting his presence, right? But he knows he's going to get them, right? I mean, they're under the tree, Mom and dad always give the presents. You see what I'm saying? He's not like, he's not, not distrusting them. Oh, maybe this year they won't give them to me. But he is eagerly, but also in a sense patiently, right, waiting. And that's what Christians need to do. We need to trust God that he will work in his time. But we need to also eagerly pray that God would move and work, right? It's not passivity. We don't just say, well, there is no use. I won't do anything. I will stop praying. What's the use of praying? I will stop speaking truth to my friends and neighbors, because there's no use. Nobody wants to listen, right? We must, we absolutely must continue to trust God and wait on him. It says, who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. For a while, God was hiding his face from those who refused to listen to him. But one day, we have promises, right? Isaiah 40 and following. We have promises. One day, God is going to restore them. One day. And his people need to patiently wait. And then we must continue to be the testimony God wants us to be. Continue to be the testimony God wants you to be. It says, here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. Remember, Isaiah's children's names were designed as prophecies, right? He gave, uh, God told him to give them names that were prophecies. And so I and the children, in other words, our lives are a testimony of the truth of this. So keep your testimony. Keep representing God. God's put you where he's put you for a reason. It was such an encouragement to me the other day. I was falling into this trap of discouragement. And it was basically like, you know, nothing I can do, and it's all terrible. I mean, it was one of those negative things, and nobody really wanted to be around me or anything. And then I got a call from a good friend and family member and you know, extended family member and good friend. And he just wanted to talk, and, and he wanted to have a Bible question. And I was like, wow, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for, for giving me that little bit of an encouragement that what we do and say still matters to people. You know, there are people that are looking to you. There are people that have been watching you. Some are Christians and they need encouragement. Others are lost people and they need to be saved. 
and they, they see you, and they're watching you. And God has strategically placed you in this world at this time. There are lots of times I'm thinking, boy, wouldn't it have been nice to live somewhere else in some other time? You know, once we realize what most other places and most other times have been like, we probably wouldn't think that, but it's kind of fantasy land. But what's the point of it anyway? God put us here now. This is our job. This is our post. God wants us to continue to trust him and represent him in this world. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and we continue to be ambassadors. Well, what's the final thing we have to do? Well, first thing, we must avoid the temptation of panic. Secondly, we must avoid the temptation of discouragement. And finally, we must avoid the temptation of subjectivity. Subjectivity. Now, you say that's not a very powerful third point. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the way it goes. What is subjectivity? Subjectivity is the idea that what I think is what's right. Subjectivity is the idea that I need to be able to make it the way I want it. You see what I'm saying? Instead of submitting myself to the way God wants it. And why do I say subjectivity? Notice in verse 19, and when they say to you, it's interesting, this is plural here. In other words, it's not just saying when they say to Isaiah, but when they say to any of you, when they say to any of you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. In other words, go after people who have this reputation for insight into the spirit world. See, here's the, here's the pagan idea of the way the world works. <clears throat> for the, for the, the pagan mindset was there are many gods. There is no absolute God. There are many gods. And the gods sometimes are on the same side, sometimes they're on opposite sides, right? They're like a, a big squabbling family. And no one God can, is worthy of your absolute trust, right? Because no one God is absolute. No one God is absolutely good. No one God is absolutely powerful. No one God is absolutely wise. So trusting in one God is sort of a losing proposition. You've got to kind of build a team. It's like fantasy football. And nations did that. They would conquer a nation and take their idols, their gods, and take them back and put them in their own temple and say, now I've got more gods on my team. And that's the way they thought it worked. Well, what else did they do? Well, they would do divination. Divination was where you would like, maybe you would look at the stars or maybe you'd cut an animal open, look at the liver and say, well, there's a spot here or whatever. And it was supposed to be a way of figuring out sort of like, it's like getting insider information into the spirit world. Right? You're trying to get tips and insights into how things work so that if I know more, then what can I do? I can know, do more, right? Because if I, if I know what the, if I can figure out what, it's like, it's like cheating, right? Where I know the other team's plays or something, or signal stealing or whatever, you, in other, using sports illustrations. But it's like spying. It's like, it's like getting information, intelligence. And if I can get this information, then that will help me figure out how I can win. That's why before the kings would go to battle, they would like do these things and say, what's a good time to go attack? Remember, remember um, Haman who wanted to kill off all the Jews in, in, in the Persia? And he said, okay, when should we do this? And they cast lots because they figured, oh, we'll figure out you know, when it will be successful. Okay. So the idea is that I can, I can figure out things so that then I can make things the way that I want them. And so they would even try to consult the dead. Why? Well, the dead are on the other side, right? They've gone to Sheol. They've gone to the other side, so they know what's over there. So if we can get them, then they can help us figure out what we need to do 
to, to, to solve our problems and be victorious. And there's a lot of magic, there's a lot of astrology, there's a lot of all kinds of things going on today, isn't there? Where people are trying to get a leg up. But at the end of the day, it's manipulation because God will not be manipulated, right? God tells us, right, in his word, and then he is the living God, and then he keeps his word, and he doesn't want us trying to figure out a, another option, right? He doesn't want us trying to figure out, okay, like Balaam. Oh, okay, Balak says, if you come over here, maybe God will let you curse them. Don't look at all of them, just look at some of them, and maybe he'll let you curse them. But you see, that's how people thought about gods in those days. They didn't believe in the true God. Well, what does subjectivity look like in our day? Well, I think that and, and, and it's different for different people, but it doesn't have to be actually going to some astrologer. It can also be, it can also be a, a situation where we are, in fact, ourselves really trying to get God over onto our side. Now, I, I want to be careful. We are to pray, right? And we're to pray with importunity, and we're to pray in faith. But we've got to pray according to God's revealed will. And even the Lord Jesus in the garden, what did he pray? Not my will, but thine be done. So it's an attitude problem. You see what I'm saying? It's like the child, you know, you know in your home, right? You know the difference between appeals on the part of children and asking and whining. What's the difference? Whining is I'm trying to pressure you to do what I want. Appeals are, I am asking you because you're my parents and you know what's best, so I'm asking you to do something for me. And we, we all know the difference in attitude, don't we? So what do we need to do? Well, again, we need to trust God. Now, it's very interesting. We need to walk in the light of God and not in the light of our own understanding. Right? Notice what it says. It says here. It says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is that there is no light in them. Right? To the law and to the testimony, to the word of God. God has revealed who he is. God has revealed what he does. And we need to trust what he's told us, right? So what happens to people who don't trust in God and in his word? Well, they pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. They suffer for it. People who try to go their own way suffer for it, right? The way of transgressors is hard. And they will be enraged. People, the way of transgressors makes them angry. People get angry when they want their own way and they don't get their own way. Isn't that true? You ever really, really wanted your own way and didn't get it? You know, you might as well say, okay, family, go take a little vacation, you know, take a little holiday and, you know, while I'm having my pity party and then once I'm over that, come back because I'll be a reasonable person again. I mean, we get angry with people and we say they will curse their king and their God and look upward, right? They're looking upward, but they're cursing God. They're not trusting him. Right? And then they look down and all they see is gloom and anguish. And you say, well, that's kind of depressing. And does the text end there? Well, the chapter ends there. And we do have another section here. But we know the end of the story, don't we? Because what comes in chapter 9? Chapter 9 is the promise of Jesus coming. Right? And I won't go through the whole thing. But, but, but there's going to be a period of darkness. Yes, there's a period of darkness. Right? But God's going to... Descend, and it says in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. 
We know the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. He's already won, folks. He won on the cross. He broke the head of the serpent. He crushed the head of the serpent. He's been raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. We are seated at the right hand of the Father with Him. This isn't pie in the sky by and by. This is right now. We, we know the Lord. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. You have all the blessings of Christ. You're accepted by God in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. Listen, folks, we aren't the answer in the sense that we think we're so great. But we do know the answer. We know who has the answer. You know, but we need to trust him. We need to trust him. So two, just basically two questions. Number one, are you in Christ? Do you know Christ? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ personally, that he died on the, that you believe that he died on the cross for you, that he's God come in the flesh, that he died on the cross for you, that he rose again for you, and that, and that you are trusting him for eternal life in heaven, but also eternal life now where you can live a life in fellowship with him. Are you trusting him? Secondly, if you aren't, why not? Why not? He's the Savior. He's the Savior. And if we are, let's live like it. Let's live like it. What does God want me to do? He just wants me to what? Trust Him. Trust Him. Father, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for the Word of God. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would be the kind of testimony You want us to be in troubled times and in all times. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to love you. Help us to serve you. Help us to represent you because you alone are worthy. We pray it in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ.